when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Is the UK's third wave of the coronavirus pandemic already waning? One of the country's preeminent epidemiologists believes that the worst may soon be over. The effect of vaccines has been huge in reducing the risk of hospitalisation and death. And I think I'm positive that by late September, October time, we will be looking back at most of the pandemic. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In our second summer interview special, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London. Nicknamed Professor Lockdown by some of the populist newspapers, the leading scientist and government advisor has merged as one of the most prominent and authoritative voices during the pandemic. His modelling has played a major role in the government's decision-making on how to curb the infections and should the NHS did not collapse. We'll be opening up his crystal ball to look at his thoughts on what will happen in the coming weeks and months with the pandemic, the importance of the booster programme, the UK's overall response to coronavirus and broader questions about the role of scientists and academia in public life. But Neil, welcome to Payne's Politics. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, we're speaking in the middle of summer. It's August. Lots of people are going away. And of course, as we know, the government's trying to get the right balance between allowing borders to be open and protecting from further infections. I've just come back from a lovely couple of weeks in the Balearic Islands. What about you? Are you holidaying at home or are you working throughout the summer? Mostly working, doing some hill walking, mostly in this country. It's probably the safest and easiest thing to do, which I think lots of people are are doing at the moment because flying is still a bit of a faff and I think it's going to be so for quite some time. Yeah. Now, let's go on to the main thing, which is where we're at with coronavirus. And that clip we heard at the top of the programme there was an interview a couple of weeks ago, which was saying that it seems to be we are past the worst of this exit wave, that now society has opened back up again. People are still being cautious, still wearing masks in lots of places. But how confident are you feeling about what you said, that by September, October, will we pass the worst of this next wave of infections? So to clarify, I, I was saying we'd be past the worst of the whole pandemic. I think the next two to three months are quite unpredictable in terms of whether we see a sustained decline in case numbers in infections, which we'd all like, or whether we see case numbers start increasing again. I mean, my comment about looking back on the pandemic is what we're seeing is whatever size this wave will be, it will be the last you know, proper wave of, of the initial pandemic. At that point, we will reach what is called herd immunity. And whilst that's not a all or nothing thing and may wane over time and things may disrupt it, it, it marks a transition to a different form of management and living with COVID. COVID is going to be with us really indefinitely into the future. We'll probably cause waves of infection every year, but hopefully with you know, the use of vaccination, keeping coverage up, we can manage it without the emergency measures 
we've had to employ in the last 18 months. Have you been at all surprised about what's happened since July the 19th? Because as we recall, when Boris Johnson announced they were going to push ahead with that final easing of restrictions in England and Scotland and Wales have followed a similar trajectory, he was being very cautious, as was the government's chief medical and scientific advisors. As we're recording this now in the first week of August, you know, infections are coming down and there seems to be a bit of bafflement about why that is. That's absolutely true. There is still some bafflement. We and and other groups advising the government have been looking at that in detail. You're right. I mean, it's instead of uh, Freedom Day, the way the epidemic behaved is as if we'd announced another lockdown, an incredibly synchronous reduction in cases across the country. And we have gone back to try and understand what happened. What we saw in early July, and you can only really resolve these things quite crudely in real time, is an uptick in transmission and uptick in contact rates in the population. And, and we expected that gradually as you're, you're relaxing measures. I mean, people take a while to adjust their behavior, but you expect contact rates to go up. But then really quite strangely, after 11th of July, we saw a, a significant drop in contact rates in the population. Our best analysis of that um, from multiple groups is probably a Euro's effect. Um, if you dig into the data, you see an excess of cases in young men, contact rates that went particularly high in young men. And contact rates now are considerably lower. They're creeping up, but to give you an indication, they're lower than they were this time last year in the August you know, eat out to help out season. So people, I think, as well as the Euros, which I think was an abnormal event, finishing, people have also listened to the message from the government, aware of the high case numbers, and they're actually being very cautious. So despite the freedoms people have, they're not fully taking advantage of them in terms of sort of mixing, which could lead to transmission. I think test and trace is also playing a role. It has a much bigger impact when society is open than when people can't meet each other anyhow. And perhaps there's some residual effect of things like mask wearing on public transport. The real question, though, is, is it sufficient? What we've seen in the last week or two is cases continuing to drop, but the rate of decline is slowing. Um, It's almost as if case numbers may plateau in the next week or two. The question is, do they start going up again then? As we saw last year in the middle of August, case numbers crept up. And what will happen in early September when schools go back? It's an interesting thing about human behaviour, about why people are being more cautious. And I guess that's what dictated the government's decision to go ahead with the easing on July the 19th, because they may be in their research or whatever it was, their advice said that people aren't going to suddenly go out and have a big party. And it just strikes me as interesting that people have actually listened and heeded that advice. Do you think that's something to do with basically how many lockdowns we've been through and how people are still so nervous about coronavirus? I'm not sure about nervous about coronavirus. I think people are confident in the vaccine and its effectiveness. But I think the government messaging and messaging from scientists and everybody about the need for caution, that just because you have freedom, you don't have to necessarily use it, and particularly about protecting others from wearing masks. I think that has come through. We actually saw it last year. If you remember... It also takes, just takes a while for people to change their behaviour. And we've been living with coronavirus and lockdowns for a very long time now. Indeed. We saw, we saw last summer that we relaxed the lockdown, first lockdown in June. And it took two months for people to get back to something resembling normal behaviour. And even last August, we were still well below levels of contact you'd 
we saw before the pandemic. Now, obviously, if that's where we are in August, is there going to be some kind of crunch point? This is something that I think the government has warned about, that obviously cases may rise, but then we're also going to have other diseases. You've got the flu thing is obviously getting people in the NHS very nervous at the moment. You say that we maybe are past the worst, those brutal measures, you know, could you see the need for more restrictions later in the year, even potentially another lockdown? Or because of the vaccines, do we no longer need that quite sort of uh, brutal weapon to beat COVID? I think with one important caveat, which I'll come to, I hope we won't need another lockdown. I should also say the higher we can get vaccine coverage, the better. And vaccinating 16 and 17 year olds from that perspective will be a good thing. It will further boost the immunity of the population at whole and the whole reduced transmission. But I think we are in for a, I mean, particularly the health service is in for a difficult winter. Multiple scientists and groups have said this. We haven't had a significant flu epidemic now for going on for two years. People's immunity will have waned, particularly those people who don't get vaccinated every year. So we can expect potentially quite a bad flu season. And we know winter pressures on the health system take it to very close or over capacity most years. And so I think this year will be difficult. I don't think it will necessarily merit lockdown. My one caveat to that is the evolution of coronavirus is highly unpredictable. And so clearly, and I think the government has said this too, if we, in the worst case where a variant arises, which substantially escapes the immunity given by either past infection or vaccination, that could unfortunately um, set us back somewhat. Whether we need to go to full lockdown, I think, is open to question. But uh, in that circumstance, I think some social distancing measures might need to be introduced again. And, and what's the likelihood of that happening? Because obviously, I think in the very beginning, scientists like yourself always said there could be a new variant that emerged. And we obviously had the Kent variant, the, um, which I think obviously became the Alpha variant. And we've now got the Delta variant, which has become dominant in the UK and many other parts of the world. And I've read various things from other scientists saying that, in fact, they think that it's unlikely to evolve into a, into a vaccine escape variant. I mean, so there are constraints on evolution. Viruses can't do anything they want. They have certain molecular receptors which they bind to and they can't evolve to completely escape the immune response. The question is degree, really. So we know the Delta variant partially escapes immunity. Thankfully, protection against severe disease seems to still be very high, but probably protection against infection, even people with two doses of Pfizer is somewhere between 65 70%, something like that, from the latest national statistics survey data and, and other studies. And so it's, it's a gradual, if, if we lost another 20%, and if protection against severe disease was even compromised a little, then that could still cause significant challenges. So as to whether it's going to happen, we really don't know. We're monitoring variants all the time. New ones are popping up all the time. Probably the infection levels globally are higher than they've ever been. So constantly we're getting new mutations in this virus, new variants emerge. We just have to see what happens. Now, of course, one thing the UK is doing to try and get ahead of this is the booster programme. And as you mentioned, it's going to start in September and it's obviously going to start with the most vulnerable people. Do you think that's going to end up or will it need to be the whole adult population or just the most vulnerable? So I think it remains to be seen. We do know that both natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity wanes over time to some degree. There's been new data published by uh, Pfizer, the vaccine manufacturer, suggesting 
their initial 93% protection against uh, symptomatic disease wanes to about 85% after six months. But critically, we think that protection against severe disease, against hospitalization and death, probably is sustained at much higher levels. The reason one might, and I agree with the decision to initially target extremely clinically vulnerable people first, is often a large proportion of that group are immunocompromised to some degree. And that means vaccine effectiveness in that group is probably lower to start with. And so they are clearly the priority for boosting immunity. I think we'll need to gather more data before we can be clear on what benefits boosting the more general population will give. And what do you think about the potential moral dilemma here? Because the World Health Organization has said that actually we should be focusing on vaccinating the rest of the world because there are whole countries that are really lagging behind the developed world and not getting vaccinations. And they're saying that we shouldn't be doing booster shots before helping others. You know, do you think that's a justified concern? Yes, and I'm concerned about it. I don't think we should be using boosters for very marginal gains in immunity and protection. I think for the most clinically vulnerable group, I mean, the government is there to protect the UK population. I mean, I agree with their decision. That, that's a kind of rational decision for boosting their immunity. I think we need to be data-driven and bear in mind the limitations of the global vaccine supply in making decisions about the wider population. Obviously, a lot of the UK's most vulnerable population has been jabbed with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was the first one that was available in large quantities within the UK. And we've obviously seen the efficacy of that vaccine, particularly with the Delta variant, is less than, say, the mRNA vaccines. Do you think that when you're looking at mixing and matching, there could be a case that if you had AZ earlier in the year, you'd get an mRNA booster and then vice versa, people who had Pfizer or Moderna? I mean, potentially, the, 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 there have been a number of trials now which have looked at mixing and matching vaccines. And a number of them have shown that if you have one dose of, say, AZ followed by one dose of Pfizer or vice versa, you actually generate immunity which is larger than higher levels of antibodies than getting two doses of the same vaccine. So potentially, it's a viable strategy. You've got a layer on top of that. A lot of the clinically vulnerable groups are younger, and we know there are potential and very rare side effects in terms of blood clots associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So that also has to be factored into it. I think vaccine supply also has to be as well. And in that case, it just makes me wonder, should the UK just be ordering a big bulk of mRNA vaccines for the next year, not just for booster? Because obviously, there's going to become a point where people like me in their 30s will also then need to get another vaccination. And it's clear that from the data we have anyway, that those vaccines are more effective against the dominant variants. I mean, the UK has ordered, I think, a total of 400 million doses of vaccines. So that's enough, certainly, for a booster dose, including a very large amount of both mRNA vaccines and the vaccine uh, made by Novavax, which isn't either mRNA or vectored, but it also has very high efficacy. Um, so I think clearly it depends on actually having the vaccine delivered, but I think the government has prepared well in terms of ensuring we have a good vaccine supply through certainly to the end of next year. And when do you think we reach the point when it becomes like the flu jab? So we all have an annual jab for coronavirus. I think you've said in the past that we will have COVID with us forever more because we've obviously got this booster season coming up in the autumn. You know, will it be next year or will it be further in the future when this becomes an annual thing? So I think it's too early to say whether we will need annual jabs. 
influenza is a very particular virus, which is particularly good at escaping the immunity from vaccines and natural infection uh, through evolution. But uh, whether coronavirus, this coronavirus is as efficient at doing that as, as flu remains to be seen. So it, I think we will get booster doses and we will need people who haven't been vaccinated, probably young people will receive a coronavirus vaccine, perhaps with other vaccines. But uh, boosters maybe every two or three years rather than every year. We just basically need more data on, on how both virus evolution pans out and how the dura durability of, of immunity given by vaccines pans out as well. And you mentioned earlier about 16 and 17 year olds, which have just been announced they're going to get COVID vaccines. What about people over 12? You know, should we be vaccinating down to that age like other countries have done? I mean, I wouldn't second guess JCVI in this regard. It's a very complex trade-off involved because whilst COVID vaccines are very, very safe compared with many vaccines in use in the world for other diseases, there are you know, rare side effects. And the younger the recipient, the lower their actual risk is of severe disease from natural infection, from COVID infection. And so you have that complex trade-off there in terms of balancing risks versus benefits. So we will see different countries, different expert panels have reached somewhat different conclusions. I, I certainly agree with the 16 to 17-year-old decision, but we'll see what JCVI says in the next coming few weeks about younger teenagers. Now, let's just step back for a moment and have a look at the overall UK response to coronavirus, because before the pandemic, Britain was frequently described as one of the best equipped countries in the world to deal with a global pandemic. And I think when you look at the response, it probably hasn't quite worked out that way. You know, when you look back at where we are now in the summer of 2021, compared to where we were at the beginning of 2020, you know, wh what are the main things you think the UK got wrong? So I think the biggest technical lesson to learn is the ability to scale up testing. I mean, we were basically blind in January through to really April as to what was going on in the community. And so we, the very limited testing capacity we had for COVID was targeted at people coming from China, other countries where known infections were. And yet most of the infections seeded into this country in that, around that time came from Spain, France, Italy. And we completely missed it until people started being hospitalised, which is, is too late. So that's a technical lesson. I think in terms of you know, mistakes made, I've commented before that both in, certainly in the first wave, had we decided to lock down earlier, then we would have substantially reduced the size of, of that first wave in terms of uh, hospitalizations and deaths. And the difference you see between European countries, for instance, is mostly explained by the timing of lockdown relative to the stage of the epidemic in each country. And some people in Whitehall have described that to me as the cardinal sin of the UK's response, because those crucial 10 days, which we know have been examined a lot by the prime minister and his advisers and such like, if we had locked down quicker back in March 2020, would it have had effect on just the first lockdown or the whole of the UK's battle with coronavirus? I think it would have mostly been the first wave. Because infection levels by July of last year had got to very low levels. And really, we had seeding of infection back into the country. Indeed, the strain of virus, which took off in late August and September, was imported 
So we're really talking about a discrete period of time. And so, I mean, I think the public inquiry will, I'm sure, go into minute detail about the advice and policy decisions around March. I think hindsight is a wonderful thing. And there was huge uncertainty at the time. And people were weighing up you know, catastrophic decisions for the economy and people's lives in the face of a lot of uncertainty. So I think, in some sense, the delays there are more understandable, even if regrettable. I think where there is less excuse, if you want to put it that way, is what happened in the autumn when we knew exactly what we were facing. And all the scientific community said, if you allow the virus to grow exponentially, eventually that will translate case numbers to rise, it will translate into hospitalizations and deaths. You'll be living with a high level of infections, whilst if we act early, it doesn't cost any more because you can release measures earlier, but you keep infections lower. And I I think it was highly regrettable, not just in this country, but across Europe, the politicians felt unable to act in a prompt manner, despite what had happened earlier in the year. And bear in mind that now two thirds or more of deaths in the coronavirus epidemic in the UK happened from 1st of November onwards of last year. And I wonder as well, because obviously we know that Boris Johnson has an adverse reaction to lockdowns, and we've seen various comments from his former chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, to that. Well, I have to say, I mean, I have, I, I have, I mean, nobody <laughs> likes lockdowns. I mean, <laughs> um, the, I, I hate the moniker Professor Lockdown, and I dislike lockdowns as much as anyone else. The idea that somehow they're ever going to be something one would desire to do is is laughable. The only reason for doing them is to prevent the health system falling over, in my view. And I, I wonder if the the West might have locked down sooner, though, if China had not been the first to do it, because a lot of Western leaders will look at China and see it as an authoritarian regime. And I remember seeing the news footage of people being locked in their homes and doors welded shut and people laughing, saying, oh, it's not the sort of thing we would ever do in this country. And ultimately, we did. So if things had been a different frame of other countries had locked down, I do wonder if the UK might have accepted the need for it, as you said, to save the health service fast. I think that's an interesting idea. I think it goes two ways. First of all, you need to be sure that the measures will work. And so what the Chinese did demonstrate, even if we had doubts whether we could implement it here, did demonstrate those measures were effective. But you're right. I mean, it was Italy employing those measures in northern Italy, which probably really demonstrated to politicians in most Western countries that these were potentially feasible if draconian measures which could still be adopted in in European countries and gain the support of the population. Now, I wanted to ask you about the system of scientific advice with the governments. You've obviously got SAID, you've got SPI, you've got all these various committees. Do you think they acted well. You know, are they fast and nimble? And I guess most importantly, open enough? Because one of the criticisms Dominic Cummings made in his select committee testimony in his Substack blogs is that they're too close shop, they're too secretive, and there's not enough public information on the scientific advice. Do you think he has a point at all? Yes, but it's a difficult balancing act because if you want people to... So within those scientific groups, particularly early on in the pandemic, when things are highly, highly uncertain. There is quite a lot of free-flowing discussion of the limited data, disagreement, I mean, not not in a polarised way, but constructive disagreement and argument. And 
The one downside of, for instance, broadcasting that live is whether people would be as willing to be as, frankly, as frank and blunt as they might be behind closed doors. I think it's regrettable that membership was secret to start with and the minutes were minimal in the initial weeks. I, I see a benefit for you know, the current system of transparent membership and minuting meetings, but I still think there's a benefit to people feeling that they're not completely on public display when they're discussing really quite sensitive issues, which if taken out of context could be sensationalized, and to allow people to put ideas out there, which then get shot down by other members, without feeling that they're going to be you know, criticized in the general general population. So I think it's, it's very difficult. I think the other thing which needs consideration is, is how then advice from those committees goes through to government. We have this very well-established system of a chief scientific advisor, a chief medical officer, but they are government employees. I think they've done a great job in general, but they are constrained in quite what they can say and do in public by their positions. And other countries have, in some sense, appointed completely independent people in those roles. And so I think the public inquiry will consider this. Obviously, the chief medical officer has a lot of other responsibilities as well. But just in who gets to talk to ministers, because I certainly never did, and, and basically none of the scientists actually on these committees have directly talked to politicians. It all goes through those two positions. Whether that can be opened up in a way to give a better sense of that kind of direct connection between the people doing the research and the people making the decisions without risking a particularly charismatic and scientist dominating things. I think those things do need some consideration because it, it might lead to more nimble decision-making in, in crises. Well, just to take an example of that, so if we go back to the autumn last year decision about lockdown, where you said the scientific community was united in the need for having another lockdown. Now, let us imagine, we don't know for certain, I'm sure it will come out in the inquiry, that the government's chief scientific and medical officers said to the prime minister, we all advise we need a lockdown. All of the scientists on stage, they agree, case numbers are rising, this is going to be absolutely vital. Ultimately, as we know, the prime minister decided against that, that was a political decision. If you had more public or more independent that people they will be able to come out and say that in public and that obviously does create a difficult position for the prime minister if you have that because he's the one who has to bear the responsibilities of this he is democratically accountable those independent people are not you know you can't vote them in and out and they don't have to face the electorate at some point so you can see there is a tension there you would have to resolve yeah i completely agree and i actually think last year Patrick and Chris did a great job, and the minutes from SAGE last September were quite clear as to what the advice was. But you're completely right. At the end of the day, it is for the government to decide, for politicians to decide, bearing everything in mind. The argument was made that there was, in some sense, a trade-off between the economy and controlling the virus. I mean, I've said repeatedly, that is a false dichotomy. Uh, if you act earlier, you can release measures earlier, keep infections lower, you don't have any greater economic impact than acting late and needing lockdown in place, arguably, for even longer. But clearly, politicians across Europe were not persuaded, or at least were not able in some cases, I think, to persuade their backbenches that it was needed. 
Now, how do you feel about, you know, sort of academics have become a bit polarised in this whole debate because you've obviously got SAGE and then you saw independent SAGE was founded by the government's former chief scientific advisor, but also other scientists who have made their views public. And it feels like obviously like yourself have become the centre of public debate because it's been a pandemic, because it's been a crisis, whereas scientists have never had this kind of public role before, you know. Is that something you'd want to continue having? Is it healthy for the scientific community to have that much prominence in public policy debate? Once this pandemic is over, I'm very happy to sink into obscurity. I don't have any desire at all to be a public figure in general. I think where crises happen, and we're living through another one, namely the climate crisis, then I believe in the power of science and technology to be a major part of the solution to those crises. So it's crazy to suggest that, in some sense, those people with the expertise to not determine policy, but at least you know, input into policy and, in some cases, help shape it, should be have a, a lower priority in, in policymaking. I think it's also important in a crisis of this magnitude, just as it is in the climate crisis, for scientists such as myself to try and communicate both the science, but also the uncertainty around the science to the general population who are going to be affected by both whatever the crisis is and by the response to it. But there's obviously been, you know, there's been various op-eds and what have you from from certain newspapers of people arguing about that, um, you know, some scientists have their own political agendas on this, that they have, and everyone has politics, they all have their inbuilt biases about how they view the role of society, view the role of the state, and that obviously will influence how they look at the world. So, you know, do you think that there's not enough active acknowledgement of the politicisation of some scientific advice? Or do you think it doesn't exist? It depends whether you talk about big or small p politics. I think we are, scientists are citizens in the country with a diversity of opinions. I certainly reject the term used in some publications recently that, you know, we're all left wing. I, I think it's presumptuous to assume what you know, Chris Whitty's politics are. And to my knowledge, he, I, don't, I don't think he is particularly left wing. I think scientists do the very best they can to give objective advice on the scientific facts, let's say. There is, of course, an area of applied science, where I work in, or many climate scientists work in, which is to say, what is the likely impact of then control measures, or policy changes on whatever you're trying to manage? I don't even think that is necessarily politicised. I think there's a difference between saying, well, if you do this, this will happen, this may happen, if you do that, this may happen, and advocating actively for a particular policy. I think that's what crosses the line into something which could be described as, as political, at least with a small p. I don't think most scientists have a significant political agenda in any sense. I mean, all the scientists I know, including myself, do our very best to avoid it. I mean, I've advised conservative governments, Labour governments in my time, and 
I don't feel that I've been influenced at all by my own personal political views. And then finally, Neil Ferguson, I just want to ask you about your sort of role as a modeler. And, and obviously, when you made um, some comments about what might happen with reaching hundreds of thousands of cases a day, I think there was a little spat you got into with Nate Silver, the US um, famous election modeler. And he was not having a go at you for modeling per se, but, but for being so confident about a particular outcome. What do you what do you make to that accusation? Well, I think the lesson that I've learned there is if you say something is almost inevitably, almost inevitable, then almost inevitably it won't happen. I think there's, no, there's a fairness. I mean, if you listen to that whole interview I did on Mar, I was very clear about the uncertainties and the trade-off between uh, immunity, how quickly contact rates increased. What we hadn't anticipated is a sudden drop in contact rates. I mean, that was outside the range of what we thought would be associated with a relaxing restrictions on people's lives. I'm always willing to take criticism. Um, he's done some good work. I will, yes, maybe avoid that such definitive uh, phrases in future. And do you think sort of modelers are now going to remain, you know, a big part of the public realm because people have gained huge fan bases on Twitter? And, you know, do you think that may have an impact on our national literacy, for example, mathematical literacy, I should say? A lot of modelers want to sink back, including myself, sink back into obscurity. But I think it has highlighted that data science, statistics, mathematics is key to uh, modern life, really. It's not just hand-handling, managing epidemics and climate change and crises such as that, but actually underpins all the technology we do, we use every day. And so I think we're pushing on an open door. We have ever-increasing numbers of people wanting to go into data science, for instance, and computing. We've seen a surge in applications, uh, to PhD programs, for instance, and master's programs. And I think that's all to the good. We need more people in this country who are highly numerically, quantitatively literate if we want to compete in the world. Well, I think we could both agree that is one very good, the only good thing to come over the past couple of years. Well, Neil Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us on Payne's Politics. It's been a delight to have you on. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also do like a positive rating and a nice review. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. And we'll be back next week with another summer interview special. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.